Hey girl, how What's are you? Up? Let me just tell the listeners that I am loving the hair right now. Braided situation with some okay. little gold beads <laughs> flicked over to the side. Yeah, skin glowing. 10 out of 10. As the new culture says, get into it. Get, get into, into it. it. Yes. <laughs> Welcome to Role Model, of course, with your girl Leomi Anderson. This podcast is all about getting to the absolute heart of what shapes and moulds these amazing individuals who I like to call role models. Today's guest is an absolute gem. Hailing from South Africa, she's an actress, TV personality and human rights activist with the most incredible laugh and infectious smile. We talk about how she went from accountancy Yes, people, to acting. My face was on billboards, on moving vehicles, on every single corner of streets. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? Her thoughts on marriage and settling down. I've never been a person who believes in, well, I don't, let me just rephrase that. I don't believe that I was created for the institution of marriage. And of course, her breakout role alongside some of Hollywood's icons in coming to America too, baby. Me! You know, that's why I went into imposter syndrome. I was like, oh my God, there's better people that deserve this who have been doing this for years, you know, who are more talented possibly, you know, why me, why me? And obviously, you know, you got to sit with yourself and it's like, yo, why not you? Take a bow, it's Namzamo Umbatha. So tell me, first of all, how are you? How have you been? Set the scene for us. Where are you right now? Set the scene. I am in California. California love, baby. Uh, as, 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 as the people call it, Angelino. So I'm in Angelino now. Um, thank goodness I took the chance to go home in, in December and spend time with family for Christmas and New Year's. Um, but I've been good. Mm. I've been good. I mean, I think we this time last year, we were all a ball of nerves because we were like, what is going on? Yeah. Is it Armageddon? You know, is it the end of times? <laughs> <laughs> That's how I'm going to tell my kids it was. I'm going to tell my kids that it was like Mad Max and that like we were all like running around. It was dusty outside. Like <laughs> I'm going to tell them there was cars left on the side of the road, everything. So, you know, it may as well be Armageddon. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. <laughs> And as you said, you got to go home in December. Paint me a little picture of how you grew up, where you grew up and all of that good stuff. I'm from a city called Durban, which is like on the coast. So we have all the beach. We have all the sun, all the humidity. Winter is a myth Ugh. in Durban. Okay. I'm jealous. <laughs> um, it's one... I promise you, you have to go. You have to go because I find that everybody, whenever they go to South Africa, it's always Cape Town and Johannesburg. That's obviously the most popular and I get it, but you have to experience Durban because there's nothing like it. I grew up in a township. So a township is almost like, um, like the projects or the favelas in Brazil, that kind of setting. It's called Guamashu. Um, you know, I grew up where all the culture and people who would wake up at four in the morning to go and catch the bus, mm. you know, to work and all the hustle and bustle. I was literally in the middle of it. You know, uh, it's an area that would either inspire you or an area that would either demotivate mm. you. And for me, it just inspired me to work hard, to dream bigger, to make it out, you know, and make some for myself and carry on the lineage of my family and make something of my mother's surname and my father's surname. So I've always been a kid that just really dreamed big, a kid that always wanted more for herself and who knew, 
you know, there was never doubt in my mind. I was like, I'm going to make you, it You, <laughs> Yes. I just had like this wondrous spirit, I guess, in terms of just my dreams and in terms of what I wanted out of my life. And I, and I guess I did, even when I went to college, I decided to go to Cape Town, you know, uh, leave my city and, and truly just like thrust myself into this new environment. And I didn't go to like a private school throughout my schooling career. Mm. And so getting to college, which is like University of Cape Town, which is the top university in Africa. And you have people yes, from girl. all over the world. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we have all these young people from all over the world who come from all kinds of different backgrounds. And, you know, I get there and I have this weird imposter syndrome because everybody uh, has a better accent or dialect in speaking English than me. And, you know, the kids that went to private school are asking me, why do you speak like that? And I didn't realize that I had a different accent. So I'm like, you're like, what do, do you mean? You know, what are you talking <laughs> about? What do you mean? Again, you know, being thrust upon this new environment, just, you know, and I was like, okay, cool. How do we build upon this? How do we, mm. you know, get through this and how do we grow from it? And so that's, that was my upbringing. That's literally the long and short of it. You've done so much. And honestly, that's exactly what this podcast is about. I want people to understand your journey because it's not all just about the silver screen and the red carpets and all that that people see now. There's a whole story behind how you got to where you are and that's why I'm so excited to have you on yes. and it's funny you say um you went to University of Cape Town right yes. I've actually visited the campus before because I went there for a job oh, what? yeah the campus is incredible it's so beautiful it was my first time ever visiting the continent of Africa and I went to South Africa and I can't lie to you even though of course I understood the history I was like wow there's so many white people <laughs> oh my god I was like bloody hell like am I in Europe right now I I, w I knew I knew that everyone told me to expect it and obviously I knew that, yeah. what to expect but at the same token I was like I can't believe that this is my first time and I'm like I'm surrounded by whites no offence but right. all offence <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about that please talk to me about going to uni in Cape Town because that must have been a culture shock not culture shock as such but like as you said you grew up in your township and then going to the University of Cape Town that is kind of very different. Explain to me what that was like, please. I would probably say the demographics are not that, you know, uh, contrasted. So there was a mix of people, you know, a lot of black people, a lot of, as you know, with South Africa, there's, you know, there's a lot of racial um, divides. Well, specifics or labeling, Label, you know, so there's yeah. a lot of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I think there was a balance, but of course, you know, because it's the University of Cape Town, it means that it's one of the most popular universities in the world, right? Yeah. Because it's number one in Africa. So for me, I mean, I would definitely understand why it was such a huge shock because when you go to Cape Town, it's little Europe, especially when you go yeah. to like, Clifton or Camps Bay, it's little Europe, you know? So, I mean, there was that little bit of a, oh, okay, I got to adjust to this because in my classroom, mm. I had, you know, colored people, Indian people and black people. Um, and that was, you know, that was my entire school actually. And in my entire yeah. schooling experience from primary school until high school. And so when you get to, to university, you're like, oh my, okay adjustment. Um, but I wouldn't say, can I tell you the juxtaposition wasn't necessarily from, um, interacting with white people or, uh, schooling with white people. For me, it was schooling with black kids that went to Ivy league high schools or black kids ah. that grew up very privileged who 
wouldn't necessarily be able to understand a person like myself and how I grew up. You know, I remember very distinctly being in the cafeteria and one of the kids who, one of the guys, black guy, who had grown up very privileged and were all eating at the table. Mm. And, you know, he was one of the people that had the conversation about my accent. And he looked at my hands and he was like, why are your knuckles so black? But not in a way that was pleasant, you know? But in a way to like create some kind of jest, you know, at the table for everybody yeah. to to laugh at this, like, oh, why are your knuckles so black? And I remember like looking at my knuckles, I was like, oh, they are. I, I've never, I've never been a person who you know sees myself <laughs> in that kind of way. Like, why am I noticing my knuckles? I don't know. And yeah, but it came from a very classist way. So I guess with discrimination, there's so many other things that we as people, you know, as a global community need to also discuss, you know, um, the issues of colorism, the issues of sexism, the issues of classism. Mm, I can you want to know what? Like, I'd never thought about that I never as in I couldn't I didn't think that that was what you were going to tell me basically I didn't know what I was expecting the university to be like but damn that's annoying that it's another black person but again you're right classism is something that exists amongst all races so it's interesting that that was your kind of experience in uni what did you study at uni tell us I studied a bachelor of commerce in accounting I know very boring Um, Random, (laughs) random. Tell me why, like, why accounting? I was good in numbers. I was good in accounting. I was an A-class student. um, And I just applied, okay? Little duck scholar. (laughs) And then I got a bursary from Mutual and Federal to go and study at the University of Cape Town. Fully paid everything down to an allowance every month. And that's why I studied accounting and I was really good at it. Yeah, I'm I'm an accountant. Who were some of your inspirations growing up? So many, so many inspirations. I think for me, it was, I always say, um, because I grew up in a township, you see people who wake up at four o'clock in the morning and you're walking to the bus stop so you can catch a bus Mm. to school, which is going to take an hour for you to get there anyway. Mm. And the average man and average woman who you encounter at 5.30 in the morning, Mm. who's holding an envelope and that envelope has their resume and they're going into the urban uh, city or CBD to go and hand it in somewhere and look for a job. Those were the people that were my motivation and my inspiration, just inspired by the hard work, um, the ability to, to not look at your circumstances and give up on life, but to wake up each time and try and try again. Um, and then there were people who were in industries, you know, uh, Judy Zamini, who's one of the most prolific women in South Africa, a businesswoman in South Africa, who's just absolutely amazing. You get a Nunu Kumalo, who's the head of Facebook Africa, who has an illustrious career in marketing, um, is even in the hall of fame, you know, so she's done incredible. Wow. And I was like, oh my God, I, I need to work really hard. And then you'd get women like Oprah Winfrey, who would just arrest me every single afternoon. And every time there would be a cricket match, I think that's why I just have, you know, me and cricket have a, a weird, weird relationship. I'm like, mm, I don't know if I like you because cricket is like a three day <laughs> sport and three days, it would just be in the same time as the Oprah Winfrey show. So for three days, I wouldn't get, you know, access to the Oprah Winfrey show. I'm like, I need a dose like, of excuse mama. me. Oh. <laughs> 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 Who else was my uh, inspiration? I would definitely say... 
uh, Viola Davis. Oh, love, love her. My goodness. And I would definitely say uh, in the politics space, Winnie Mandela, who I was named after. Her name was also Nomzamo and my grandmother absolutely adored her. So she was like, your name's going to be Nomzamo. I was like, that's a lot to live up to. Talk to me a little bit about your family. So I'm a middle child of... Many, many siblings, uh, as we know, in the African culture. So I've stopped counting. I'm like, I'm not going to count. I get that. <laughs> I'm just somewhere in the middle. So I go against the grain. I do my own thing. You know, uh, yeah, nobody has to worry about me. They know that I got it together. But I'm close to practically everyone. Um, I'm close to my baby brother, who's Aww. the youngest, who's like one of the sweetest, sweetest human beings. And then I have um, my eldest sister, who is my only remaining sister now. Um, and Two other siblings that uh, passed away. One was my youngest sister. She passed away at the age of 20. And then my eldest sister, who was also like my very best friend, she passed away at the age, I think, of like 34, I think. You know, I still have my baby brother who's in the industry. He's just, you know, he's... 22 now and he's getting his life and he's like this little superstar (laughs) on tv you know learning as an actor becoming a strong performer and just doing his thing so everybody's waiting for the husband everybody's waiting for the kid you know one (laughs) one too many times (laughs) i i've been in my relationship now for like over five years and people are always like to me oh so when are you gonna like have a child and i have like two friends who are pregnant friends who are married this this this, that listen you see me you see me i'm the type of person i will be leaving that baby yeah at the airport (laughs) on the flipping conveyor belt when they're scanning our our hand luggage the baby will get left right i've left my own suitcase before i could easily leave a child so please (laughs) people need to stop asking me that question because i am not ready yeah i'm still trying to take care of myself okay i'm still trying to not lose myself you know (laughs) are you dating are you like you know what's your situation you're in la i know there's a lot of fine guys over there i'm dating right now I don't can I tell you I never thought that I'd be into any LA guys so I'm like you know my man is in Europe yeah you know yeah Europe or Ghana okay (laughs) who knows (laughs) but yeah I don't know I'm still like figuring it out but also I've never been a person who believes in well I don't let me just rephrase that I don't believe that I was created for the institution of marriage I do want to be a mom one day because I do know that I have maternal instinct I have like 10 nieces and nephews so you know they take up most of my time I take them to school and make sure that everybody's you know settled and fine and taken care of so they are my priority right now they are not into me having a kid I have joked about it and their faces have changed and I've seen tears I promise you I've seen tears like and then you, you end up questioning why. And it's like, well, Auntie, if you have a kid, you probably won't love us anymore. And I'm like, oh my God, we have a problem <laughs> on our hands. Yeah, I definitely want to be a mom one day. Um, I'll probably have, I'll be a mom like in the most unconventional way. You know, I'll find, I get that. you know, a best friend. Yeah, I'll be like a best friend. I'll be like, hey, you want to do artificial insemination or something? You know what I mean? Let's, <laughs> let's be best friends and parents. You know what? You don't want to do that. So you spoke about your siblings and that obviously some of your siblings have passed away. Like, how did you deal with that? And like, at what age did you first experience like losing someone close to you? As young people, we don't talk about loss a lot. Most people that talk about loss, it's always people in the older age group. And it almost feels like, you know, we're untouched by it. But I think COVID really like, you know, a lot of people lost parents during COVID and loved ones and friends and stuff. But I think I experienced loss 
house for the very first time. I must have been 10 or 11. And it was an aunt that I was extremely close to who adored me and I loved her. And that was my first experience with loss. And my second experience was with my father. The grief that I experienced losing my father was unfathomable. I can't even explain what it's like, you know. Um, and somebody who actually explains loss in such a profound way is uh, Chimamanda Adichie. Um, she lost her father recently and she just wrote this piece and I was like, oh my goodness, yes, this makes all the sense in the world, you know, the way that she explained it and the way that she expressed it. And then, you know, I've I've gone through a couple of losses. So, I mean, I don't want to to be about grief and loss, but Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I yeah, get it. but it's but it's 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 one of those things where you have to you go through it and obviously you don't you don't get a break from it, but you learn so much more about life, you know. That's why you take chances, that's why you live like you don't have tomorrow because you literally get that firsthand experience of tomorrow is not guaranteed. And and I think that's what loss and grief has taught me. All the losses that I've experienced in my life has just taught me to just live as though I don't have another tomorrow because I'm only accountable to myself in this life. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I want to talk a little bit about your first experiences on TV because I know that you started off with presenting. So just talk to me about how you got your confidence to get up on the on the screen and all that. I had to dig deep. I was like, okay, we have to act like we're confident. <laughs> we have to act like we know what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> because it happened during like uh, VAC. So, you know, during July and the, during the June, July summer break, I've left Cape Town. I'm in Durban. How old are you? So I'm 22 at the time. And my very best friend at the time, who was also my best, was also my boyfriend. He was like, yo, you have to enter this competition. So this competition, he sees it. It's MTV base and MTV is like huge. Right. And they are looking for their next presenter. Right. And they're going on a nationwide search. And I'm thinking, no freaking way, because number one, I am not that cool. I have I, I don't think I don't think I have anything interesting to say that people want to see or hear. So, no, they are cooler kids who like, you know, move in circles <laughs> and I don't move in circles, you know, so I'm like, <laughs> and he was like, you have to do it. You've got the personality. Trust me. And I'm like, oh, OK, I go and enter this competition. Okay. I end up being in the top 10 in Durban. They fly me to Johannesburg oh. and I'm in the top 40 around the country. They narrow it down to top 10. I'm like, hold on. My God, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> what? And then I'm in the top five. And then like top 10 were already on TV. So people are already seeing, you know, the faces, you know, you got to build your, your fan base. That's when, that's the first time I actually got Twitter. Because, you know, the people at MTV okay. were like, you got to rally people on social media. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I'm on Twitter. I'm like, okay, cool. Everybody, please vote for me. And then it's top five. I'm like, oh my God, they're still keeping me around. And then top three, I'm like, what is going on? 
Does nobody see that I'm a fraud at this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I was in the finals and we had this huge, huge event that I had to go and present at and look cute and look cool and be confident or whatever. Girl, I tell you, and it's on TV and the family is there in the audience as well. Like think television. Oh, yeah. Think any kind of television competition. That is yeah. huge. So family's been flown in. Everybody's in the audience, like all the A-listers and stuff. And I'm like, oh my God. My heart would be beating. Girl. <laughs> but I mean, there was a really strong contender. She was so good. And I knew, and she had swag, you know, and I was like, I ain't got no swag. So I knew she was going to win, but I was like, okay, I got to go out there and be the best loser there is. That's sometimes my my motto in life. I'm like, okay, if we're going to lose this, I'm going to be the best loser. So let's give it our all. And I went out there. Anyway, I lost out. But I I remember just like going into the bathroom stall and being like, you know, God, thank you for this no, because I know you're preparing me for an even greater yes. So throughout the competition, um, a casting director who was casting for a new show on television that was going to be a soap opera um, reached out to me and they were like, listen, we're looking for somebody with natural talent who can speak Isizulu, which is like my home language and also English. And I was like, oh, okay, I guess. I went and auditioned for this role and I got it. Lo and behold, it became the biggest TV show in the country. That's crazy, see? Unbelievable. My face was on billboards, on moving vehicles, on every single corner oh of my street. Days. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? You know? <laughs> Again, right? That is crazy. <laughs> the biggest, yeah. yes. And so it, and, and, and I was thrust into this industry, you know, um, and, and I guess that's what it is, you know? Per, you can run away from your purpose, but your purpose will somehow find you. And I treated, Ooh. I treated that um, set like it was my film school because I didn't get an opportunity to go and study theater and performance. So everything, like I was surrounded by you know veterans in the industry, people who had been on TV all my life that I admired and looked at, and I'd be like, oh my god, you've, they've done so much, and. You know, and just realizing that, I guess, yeah, purpose had chased me down and found me and given me a second chance to to do this again and do it right and do it in the most unconventional way. And I guess, you know, that's when all the brand partnerships came, Neutrogena came and then, you know, Puma came and then all kinds of, you know, brands were like chasing after me and they're like, we want to work with you, want to work with you. And mm -hmm. I built a name for myself. I worked at the UN um, because I had already been doing a lot of stuff in my own capacity because, you know, I've, I've always been a philanthropist and a humanitarian at heart. It's one of my greatest callings. And that's how I got to work with the UN and that catapulted me into a different sphere as well. Um, being on TV and working, you know, um, on different film sets and different dramas and taking leads in that also gave me the opportunity to uh, travel for BET Awards and come to LA and meet all these great stars. We spoke a little bit about imposter syndrome, but when you were first on set and you're blowing up, everything's going crazy, your face is everywhere. Like, how did that feel? And like, did you ever have moments where you were like, oh my gosh, like, I'm not ready for this? And if so, how did you overcome that? I think I got imposter syndrome more in the space of... Uh, being invited to speak at the UN, I was like, oh my gosh, am I even smart enough to be sitting next to, you know, um, 
Amina, who is the deputy secretary secretary general of the United Nations and be conducting, you know, a panel discussion. Um, and then I got imposter syndrome when I was on the set of coming to America. But I think for me, when I first, in, when I first blew up in the industry, I had a struggle of, can I be myself? Are people okay with hearing my voice and, and accepting me? Um, because also, you know how social media is, especially people on Twitter, anything can be ripped to shreds and everything can be like, Microexamined, and and so and also during interviews, what do I share about my life, and what do I hold back? Right? How do I show up in the space and still be respected, and still talk about my um, my work and who I am and what I am passionate about, but also remaining the nomzamo that I am and not be you know typecast and no and not be hypersexualized. So there was a lot of you know all of those things of just setting the tone. Um, and I remember somebody just like advising me like, yo don't engage too much in social media, you know, because if you, if you're going to be, if you're going to speak, if you're going to be concentrating on all the good things, when the bad things come, people want you to also respond to that. So be mindful and and sift through what it is that you engage with. Right. So I felt a little bit pacified in that, you know, regard. And I was like, "Eh, you know, maybe this is not for me. I don't know if I want to do this, you know, especially with what it comes with. And obviously people say, you know, well, even if you're eating at a table and somebody wants to, to, and like five people want to join at your table and take pictures and not even greet your family, this is what you signed up for. And I'm like, I didn't sign up for rude people. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, I don't think I signed up for that. (sighs) You know, (laughs) I didn't sign up to be objectified. That's not what I signed up for. You know, there's, there's much more that I come with. There's much more that I'm, that I am, you know, outside of the person that you get to experience on TV or experience in interviews or whatever. So there was that feeling. Um, And then I remember just like the jitters of, the first night that the episode was going to air and I was like are people gonna love me are people gonna like me what is gonna happen and then it and then it aired and then I checked on social media and I got all the calls from people and they loved you had didn't they and I remember looking at my aunt I was like they like me they really like me <laughs> they really like me <laughs> And you mentioned as well that obviously you wanted to be true to yourself and keep true to yourself mm. and you didn't want to be uh, hypersexualized or you don't want people to be, you know, projecting their perceptions onto you. Was there ever times when you were entered into spaces where you felt like being a woman and being a black woman was something that was really focused on and it made you feel uncomfortable sometimes. Not that you were the black woman, but they treated you differently because I know that I have that feeling. Mm. I've had it throughout my career of entering spaces where I know that I'm being treated differently because Mm. I'm a black woman or that people, because I'm from South London, that, oh, you know, they think that they know who I am. They know my level of education or they Mm. know, you know, who I am as a person. So have you ever been in those situations and how do you navigate being in those sort of spaces? Oh my gosh. I think I've experienced it quite a lot. You know, I, Mm. I remember the most traumatic experience was probably, um, I was shooting something and it was for like a hair focus thing. And I remember just like one of the white women who were there, she came and like just grabbed my hair and was like, can we, can we just fix this please? And I remember Mm. just like my heart dropping and I've always been a girl who knows my worth and who stands up for herself. And she didn't speak to me. She was speaking around me. 
around you around me and, and mind you Trust i'm me, like that one. <laughs> no this isn't this didn't just happen and i remember speaking to my manager i said i don't care how much men how much money is being put in the bank i will get up and i will leave if she dare mm-hmm. touches my hair or comments on my hair or says anything and makes the situation and this experience awful and uncomfortable Convey that message ASAP, please. ASAP. <laughs> so that I know whether it has been received. And if it has been received, I can be able to, okay, okay, we can carry on shooting. And if it's not received, then I'm getting in my car and I'm going home. That's it. No questions asked and no further further conversation needed. I love that. Um, so for me, I've always just been, I've always just been a girl who stands up for herself and who stands for what's right. And, you know, any kind of thing that is not cute, we're gonna dismantle it in this very moment in the most graceful way because, you know, keep it cute, sis. Let's speak about the amazing scenes, the vibes, the everything that came with being a part of Coming to America 2. Tell me about the moment you found out that you got that gig. Oh my gosh. I had been back and forth with auditions and callbacks. As you would know, the callbacks, the auditions, that that life is, yeah, not cute. It's not easy. It's, it's not, not for the faint-hearted. It's really not. It's, yeah, sometimes you think, why would I ch- why would I choose a career like this? It was on uh, my grandmother's birthday, so that was super special. Oh. I thought that was so like serendipitous and I remember just like feeling this overwhelming feeling of just like relief and I wanted to like cry because I was like, "Oh my god." Well, I did cry. Uh, let me not, you know, act tough. <laughs> I did. Um, and then my agent at the time was just like, you need to be on a flight, be back in LA. Uh, we're sorting out your immigration stuff, your visa stuff, da, 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 da. And I was like, okay. He was like, you have two days. And I was like, okay, all right. I'll speak to my travel agent. Get me a flight um, out of South Africa. Uh, Cause I was home at the time and, and you know, that yes just came at a time when I was just feeling really dejected and really discouraged. Cause I was like, you know, I've been going for so many auditions and a lot of callbacks and you're getting pinned for this and pinned for that. And you're just like, oh my God, you know, when does this, when does this yes come? You know, when do I get to be on set and be able to work and make beautiful stuff and make magic and show my talent? And, you know, I got onto, I got on a flight in like two days and I land back in LA and you know how it is when you're flying over LA and you're just like seeing all the the landscape yeah the palm trees and stuff yeah and you're just like oh my goodness yeah (laughs) and you're like oh my goodness I'm I'm back in this city and I and I'm coming back with something to offer it and it has something to offer me and that's such a beautiful just moment and I and I just sat with it and there I was going into fittings with Ruth Carter who had just won her Oscar for you know her work on Black Panther and she's just amazing and I'm like oh my God, it's Ruth Carter. This is amazing. This is great. And um, she's doing fittings on me and she's the sweetest. And after that, we're doing, we're flying out to Atlanta and we're doing hair checks and makeup checks and all kinds of things. And your face is in the trailer and all other superstars' faces are there as well, stuck up in the trailer. Um, and then before you know it, you are put up at the Four Seasons for the next couple of months. And before you know it, you're on set and there you are surrounded by some of Hollywood royalty and black royalty in Hollywood who have been doing this for more than three decades, longer than you've been alive. Drop some names of who you were working with. You were working with some legends. Let's name drop. You had 
Eddie Murphy, James Earl Jones, Jennifer Sears. Come on. It's not, let me just say how just legends. They're not just legends. They are icons in this bitch. And your face is right there okay. with them. Icons. Yo, I'm like, me, me. You know, that's why I went into imposter syndrome. I was like, oh my God, there's better people that deserve this who have been doing this for years, you know, who are more talented possibly, you know, why me, why me? And obviously, you know, you got to sit with yourself and it's like, yo, why not you? So there you are and, you know, you're running lines on set and then, you know, they call on Eddie Murphy to come out of his big trailer and he comes onto set and you're like, oh my God. And he's greeting everyone and he's calm. And he's like, hi everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi. Hi, uh, Eddie. And I'm like, Numzam. He's like, oh, Numzam. I'm like, oh my God, I didn't have to correct him. He got it the first Love time. That. Yo, let's shoot. Let's shoot. Let's shoot. Let's do this. Let's do this. Okay. <laughs> uh, Arsenia Hall, who's just one of the funniest people on planet earth who would wait for the director to call action and then like whisper a little joke. And before you know it, I'm like <laughs> cracking up because I'm always laughing. Obviously, Sherry Headley, who has been, you know, the original queen. Yes. Um, oh. Absolutely amazing. Just amazing. Out of body experience. Out of body experience. And you're shooting at the Tyler Perry Studios. Iconic. Unreal. What was it like to, to just go from just being the small town girl from Durban to being on set with these icons and just like, I don't know, just how did it feel inside? And like, <laughs> did you ever have moments when you're sitting in your trailer and you're just like, yeah, what the hell? Yes. yes. What the hell? Yeah, I would, there were times where I'd be in my trailer and I'd look at myself in the mirror and be like, what the fuck? <laughs> Literally that would, that, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I'd be like, what the fuck? Just moments where you're like, damn. You know, and I like to speak to myself in third person. Damn, Zamor. Okay. Okay, girl. This is you. <laughs> you okay. did that shit. You're doing it. Okay, Zamor. You know, so yeah, I definitely had those moments. Too many of those. Too many of those. Um, but I'm terrible because I don't, I don't sit in my achievements and I don't sit in the moment. So I just told myself, I was like, this is a, this is a whole out of body experience. Okay. You will remember everything or come back to yourself, your body. In January, okay? And we finished shooting in like November, <laughs> December. I was like, in January, you'll come back to your body. You'll be like, oh. And you'll I'm... be like, okay, I did that, didn't wow, I? that happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh, that happened. But I want to ask you, when was your biggest pinch me moment in your career? Me? Yes. Me, my biggest pinch me. Yeah. Oh, you okay. Were like, Whoa, Leonie. Wow. What? Okay. This uses? <laughs> Yeah, okay, because, yeah, because, yeah, because there's times that there's jobs, it's funny that you asked me that, because there's jobs where, like, they were great jobs, but, like, when I look at the pictures and that, I'm like, ah, I could have looked better. Like, you know, when it's like, oh, it's a great job and everything, but I wasn't, like, feeling yeah, my, yeah, like, yeah, mm, yeah, mm, yeah, mm. yes. But it probably has to be um, when I did the Victoria's Secret show in 2016 in Paris, and the performers were Bruno Mars and The Weeknd, and I got to walk out with Girl. The Weeknd, and the way I did some like, spin thing around Girl. him, my cheeks were bare out. I was like, ah, ah. What? my cheeks were clapping. I looked fine AF, and I got my wings that year as well. I was like, no one could tell me nothing. No one could chat shit to me for a clean 365 <laughs> days. <laughs> 365 days. I didn't want to hear no shit. Okay. <laughs> that was my moment because I looked 10 out of 10. Yo. My makeup, the hair was, mm, it was 
like I felt fire. That was my pinch me moment for sure. Mm-hmm. I love it. I love it. And I think honestly, that is the perfect way to wrap up what has been a flipping amazing conversation. And this is what we do on Role Model. We bring the people and we really dig deep, get to the nitty gritty, but we also have fun with it. And so thank you so much for sharing your story and sharing your passion. I'm feeling it radiating through the screen. Thank you. Role Model is a Something Else production produced by Harriet Wells. Additional production from Steve Ackerman. The executive producers are Claire Solon and Chris Skinner. Special thanks goes to Ellen McLeod, Charlotte Tahira, Camilla Baden, Jesse Donnelly, Emma Lansden and Mark Rivers. The sound engineer was Gulliver Tickle. Next time on Role Model. See my mom in cage like an animal all the time. I write her, but like, you know, sometimes I don't have a return address because I was living in a motel. My grandma are like living like on the streets. Like, so I just write her. So one day I'll probably give her, give my mom all the letters. That's probably the first time I ever mentioned that, the letters I never gave my mom. My mom, like seeing her now, is like, she still acts the same age as when she went in. Like, What was it like for you after not seeing your mom for so long? The first day she was watching Ted Bundy tapes after getting out of prison <laughs> for murder. I'm like, bro, can you not? <laughs>